Well, first of all, Barack, thank you for having me. Hi, everyone. Um, I, I'm thrilled to be here. I, um, yeah, it's been an interesting journey and it's a fun day to talk about it uh, because we've got, uh, as you alluded to, a pretty important announcement that we made for Foundry. It probably affects us a lot more than it affects the industry, but I, I, uh, I hope it's just uh, uh, maybe a, uh, an example of how we try to do things a little bit differently at Foundry. But um, so I've been in venture for 23 years now. Um, I started my career doing uh, some sort of banking and then, and then uh, transactional roles, eventually became a manager and uh, ran a pretty, actually a very large uh, business for uh, basically business line for a public company um, kind of back in the, in the late 90s, early 2000s. And I transitioned over to venture in 2001. I always joke with people that it was a fortuitous time to get into venture. I, I already knew what was going on. I mean, I, you know, it wasn't just that the, you know, there was a party and the, you know, the drinks had run out, but it was truly like the, the, the party was over, right? The cops had come and gone and, you know, there was no one there. Uh, but I knew that getting into it. And I, I had done some, because I had an operational background, I had done a little bit of workout work. Um, you know, I think that's what attracted me to joining venture in 2001. I worked for a very large Palo Alto-based uh, venture fund called uh, SoftBank Venture Capital. It was affiliated with SoftBank. And um, and I worked there for a while and eventually um, realized that I, I didn't really have a career path at this large venture firm. And uh, so I talked to my partner, Brad Feld, um, who I'm sure many of your listeners uh, know, and, uh, you know, I said, I said to him that I, I wasn't quitting, you know, in that conversation, but that I was going to start looking around and think about the next thing to, to do. I wasn't, wasn't excited to stay with, uh, with SoftBank. It changed its name at that point to Mobius, but was not excited to stay with that platform. And he said, well, you know, actually, I don't know that we're going to raise this fund. I've been thinking about doing something else, you know, on my own, a little bit smaller, a little bit more focused on the kind of work that you and I've been doing uh, here in Colorado, I had joined Brad in the Colorado office. I, and I should clarify, I worked for Brad at the time. Uh, he was my boss. And um, and that's what started a, a series of conversations that led to founding, founding uh, Foundry. Uh, we had two of our other uh, Mobius partners move out in, this is the summer of 2006. And then we raised our first fund in 2007. And it's been an unbelievable journey. Certainly more, I was reflecting on it because I wrote something about it this morning. Um, but I, it was more than I, I really ever could have imagined, right? We manage over $3 billion and we've, we've raised eight funds. We, um, were amongst the first VCs to really, I think the first VC to try to syndicate on AngelList. We experimented with that. We experimented with, uh, creating a fund of funds, which I think is also quite unusual. I think we were the first sort of institutional GP to create uh, a fund of funds in the way that we did. And so we've, we've had a lot of, uh, of fun along the way. And I hope. Um, you know, we've obviously made some interesting investments uh, in companies uh, all over, really primarily the U.S., but all over the U.S. Um, and I hope have, you know, added something ultimately to the venture ecosystem. I, I think what I'm perhaps most proud of is that we've assembled this this group of partner funds. Um, these are the investments that we've made in other funds. And um, I think that they represent some of the best uh, sort of emerging managers out there, right? I hope that they will be the next generation of uh, you know, of managers. So anyway, that's probably a longer answer than you wanted, but that's kind of the, the quick history of Foundry. Uh, you mentioned that Foundry was designed from start to be a limited life partnership in your uh, 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 blog post. Why did you intentionally choose not to build Foundry as a generational firm, 
So first, I should just clarify for uh, for the people that are listening that we're recording this on the morning that we announced uh, that Foundry's 2022 fund, the fund that we just raised, will be our last fund. Uh, we're gonna mm-hmm. we're gonna wrap up, and um, and I say just announced. I mean, truly, I think it was about an hour ago that I posted the post to the Foundry blog post, and then I wrote something on my own uh, as well. And um, that, as as Barack, you just uh, referenced, had always sort of been the design principle of Foundry. When we got together, when the four of us got together and started Foundry, we did a lot of work on um, sort of what type of platform we wanted to build. And and that resulted in um, a series of decisions, some of which we've kind of played around with, and I'll talk about that in a second, but, but, but a bunch of decisions as we started. And those included things like, we um, we would do all the work ourselves, right? We we really uh, never seriously uh, experimented with having associates or analysts or other people that sort of other firms have, right? We wanted to stay small um, and stay focused. Uh, we uh, we decided we wanted to raise when we were doing the just the early stage practice the same fund every time, um, and so our first fund was two hundred twenty five million dollars. And then our second fund and our third fund and our fourth, they were all $225 million. It was only when we added on the fund of funds that we actually uh, grew the size of the funds that we raised. Um, so just things like that. And, and one of the, one of those things we you know talked about was it's really hard to transition ownership in a venture firm. You, you really have to be incredibly intentional about, about doing it. And, and for the four of us, even back then, right? I mean, it's funny to talk about it now, but I mean, the truth is we were, uh, you know, I was probably 33 at the time, you know, talking about like, well, we don't want to have a generational firm. I mean, it all seems so far in the distance, right? This is nearly 20 years ago now, 18 years ago. Um, but we felt like that's, you know, that was that was sort of part of what we were trying to build. We wanted to focus on the business of venture and not the business of firm building, right? So when you think about a lot of those decisions, they're related, not raising larger funds, not having analysts and associates, and not creating a generational firm are all kind of the same thing, which was our saying, no, we really want to focus solely on the on the work of investing. And so that's that's what we did. Now, we, in truth, we did experiment a little bit with the idea of creating a generational firm, right? We have brought on a couple of new partners um, specifically, Lindell, uh, who runs our fund to funds practice, and then also um, Chris Moody and um, Jacqueline Hester, and and we did experiment, uh, or at least at least have discussions um, in the last couple years about well, what would it look like if we handed the reins over to Lindell and Jacqueline and and you know let them continue on with that, and I think we were quite open with that. Ultimately, it was actually their decision, right? They felt like no, the Foundry platform. And the Foundry ethos is so tied to the four founders of Foundry, and three of us are still there. My, my partner Jason retired a couple of years ago. Um, that you know, I think that they they ultimately came to the conclusion, which we very much supported because it was kind of back to first principles, um, that that we should stick with the original plan and and uh, ultimately wrap up. So I mean, you know, I think it means different things to each of us, right? I mean, I think you know when I look across our partnership. Um, I think we're all very focused for for a while on the business of continuing to invest. We have several years. And we're announcing early, right? We didn't want people to we didn't want people to have the perception that we somehow couldn't raise or something had bad had happened or something like that. And so we thought, well, once we've made the decision, we should probably announce it and let's announce it sort of mid cycle, right? We've got two years. We, we raised the fund in twenty twenty two. 
we had our last close about a year ago. Um, so, you know, we're really like in the heart of the investment cycle. We have at least two years left uh, on the uh, uh, to invest in new companies. And so we felt like this was a good time to to kind of make that announcement. And that gives us plenty of time to kind of plan for what's next, right? I mean, we have another probably 15 years of managing Foundry. Uh, hopefully not all of that ends up being full-time, but uh, certainly I, for one, have raised my hand within Foundry and said, I, I will be here until the absolute end. Um, and I have a lot of, I mean, I'm, I'm, I've been in venture for a long time. I like to think of myself as not like super old, right? I mean, I've just hit hit my early 50s. And so I've got a lot of energy and 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 interest um, but I also have a lot of energy and interest in other things. And I think it's it's sort of it's it's kind of apropos that we're that you and I are talking, right? Because one of the things that ultimately I want to create a little bit more time for are some of the other work that I do around venture supporting uh, venture platforms around the world. And so, you know, as you know, um, that that was the thing that drove me to working with you and and you know Startup Istanbul, and that like that's important to me. Um, but I do that in other markets as well. And, and you know, I'm working on some things in the Middle East. I'm uh, advising and, and an L, on the LPAC of a couple funds in uh, markets in Africa. And so there's some other things I'd love to, over time, uh, have some more time to do. Um, and some of that, by the way, will probably include continuing some relationship with, uh, you know, venture firms in the U.S. I've been kind of toying around with what might that what that might look like as well. But one of the funny things I wrote this in my blog post about venture is, you know, you make an announcement like this and then I go back to my schedule, right? I've got a full, full schedule of things, you know, today I'm, I'm, uh, you know, I'm in, in New York all next week with, uh, you know, portfolio companies and meetings. And, you know, there's no like pack your banker's box, have your party, you know, your go away party. And then, you know, you wake up the next morning, and you don't have anything to do. You know, I, we have years and years and years of full-time work ahead of us at Foundry. So when did you finalize this decision and how are you feeling personally about this moving into the next phase of your career? Well, it's a good day to ask me that question. So I I knew that I was not going to be a partner in the Foundry next Foundry Fund well over a year ago. I mean, really, when we were raising this last fund, so in the last couple of years, I said to my partners, I had actually toyed around with the idea of not even being a full partner in the 2022 fund. And for a bunch of reasons, decided that it, it made more sense to to continue on uh, as a full partner. But when we were mm -hmm. out raising this fund, I wasn't saying this to our LPs necessarily, but I said internally to my partners, hey, I, I'm pretty sure this is my last fund. And, you know, over the last probably we, we talked about this over the last year or so, and it really got serious over maybe the last, I don't know, six months, uh, something like that, where we really kind of felt like this is this is where we're headed. Um, but we wanted to make sure we wanted to live with that for a little bit, because once you announce something like this, it's final. And so we wanted to give ourselves a little bit of time to just sit with that decision and see how it felt. It's a little bit of a surreal morning because it's, um, you know, you, you, you're, I was very excited about this. I've been saying pu relatively publicly on some podcasts and to, uh, you know, to friends and other people that, that I was planning on wrapping up uh, after the 2022 fund. Um and so I had some experience with getting reactions to that, but it, it's still a, you know, it makes it really real, right? I mean, you know, you, you really, uh, once you've announced it, I, I, I sent what this morning when I posted the post to Foundry, I sent a Slack to my partners and I said, I guess there's no going, no changing our minds now, right? There's no going back. Um, and I got a bunch of responses like, oh my gosh, this is real. And, and so, 
uh, you know, it obviously feels different to, to have it out there. So it's nice to have this opportunity to talk about it. Rock, I mean, oh, 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 really, I'm planning on mostly just talking through the post that we wrote and, you know, talking through uh, through the uh, the Foundry post. But, um, but I, you know, it's kind of nice to have an opportunity this morning. I don't know when this is going to actually drop, but uh, to talk about it and kind of process in real time with you the emotions of, you know, having it actually be real. So will you remain on active on boards during the wind down uh, uh, or do, how do you expect the closure impact the fund portfolio companies, by the way? Yeah, I mean, I, I wrote a note to the CEOs that I work most, most closely to. And I, I sort of jokingly said, you know, you're, you're kind of stuck with me and you probably get more of my time now because, you know, we've got, again, as I said, we've got a couple years left in the investment period. So sort of nothing changes, you know, today and tomorrow. Um, but, you know, at some point in a couple of years, we won't be looking at new investments. And so that'll free up uh, quite a bit of time. Um, and, you know, nothing will change uh, in terms of my work with uh, with the portfolio. I'm not planning on changing my board load or or doing anything like that. And, and in fact, part of why I'm making this decision is I want to recognize that uh, instead of um, dropping things to make room for some of the other things that I'd like to do, what I'd like to do is sort of have a nice managed uh, sort of natural uh, churn of companies, right? We'll sell companies, you know, it's a venture business. So probably a few will will not make it. And so ultimately um, I'll see that board load go down. I've been trying Barack to be really deliberate about my, my foundry work for years now uh, because I, you know, I recognize some of the scale limitations of venture and, and I've, I've spent a lot of time, energy and money um, on, some uh, personal coaching for myself on sort of productivity and, and how to be more effective and, and how to work uh, with my companies, with my partners, with, uh, with the person that supports me uh, to create more space for the work that really matters in this business, which, you know, is working with our, our my portfolio uh, that I'm responsible for, and then looking at, at new investments. And so uh, I think that this announcement just helps me kind of create even more space for that over time. Um, but as, as I, I sort of referenced earlier, but, you know, I mean, I, I, uh, I did say to my partners, I mean, I will be at Foundry until we are absolutely done. I, I am volunteering uh, to, to wind things down. And I, you know, I recognize that, you know, five, six, seven, eight years from now, some of my partners may have some other things that they want to do. And I'm happy to take some of their work on. I know Brad, I know Chris Moody feel the same way. Uh, there is no next thing for me that is like joining another firm and becoming a partner, right? There, there, there's a, the, whatever it is that I do next will be um, something that's not not full time, if you will, right? I, I'm very interested in finding ways to stay closer to founders. I've got a couple of ideas around that. I've got a few years before I can even even start thinking about exploring those. So, lots of time to think about it. Another follow-up questions. I mean, I, I have lots of questions, but I will keep uh, several questions for this topic because I have already prepared lots of questions, uh, your experiences and startups and VCs, but uh, this was a today's, um, I mean, uh, surprise news. So how do you expect Foundry's closure will affect the broader startup ecosystem, especially in Colorado and nationally? Yeah, I mean, I don't, Foundry has occupied a certain space in the venture world, and and I hope that we've been a good example for for other funds. I don't. There's plenty of the world is awash in capital. Like I don't. I don't think anyone's going to really notice <laughs> um, that Foundry is gone. I, I, you you touched on I think an important point though, which is that inside Colorado, 
Um, obviously, Foundry, um, you know, is a large firm. And, and although our investment focus is across the U.S., because we're located in Colorado, there, uh, you know, there, there sort of is a disproportionate, if you will, amount of investment that, that we at least look at in Colorado. But, you know, that said, I, I feel like there are great new investors uh, that are um, – are sort of the up and comers in Colorado and, and, you know, Moxie and Matchstick and range. And, you know, there's a whole bunch of people that I, I really, uh, I respect and I'm excited for. Um, and I think, I think they're already doing amazing things. They weren't waiting for Foundry to step aside. And, and, you know, I feel like, um, you know, I think it creates great opportunity for others to step up. I also feel like, um, you know, I, I'm not moving from Colorado, right? So, I, you know, and, and and my partners all live there as well. So hopefully we can contribute to that ecosystem and just in different ways than, than we contribute to it now. I mean, having been in venture capital industry since 2001, I think more than 20 years, um, a period, uh, I mean, this period of uh, significant changes, can you describe how the U.S. market has evolved over these two decades? How has the concept of American dream evolved? Well, I mean, the thing to remember is that the venture industry in the U.S. was a pretty small cottage industry, really up until kind of the late mid to late 90s, right? I mean, it was really kind of the 95, 96 time period where venture started to take off. It got really crazy in the bubble period uh, of 2000 <clears throat> at 99 and 2000. And then it had sort of a very long, slow decline through, uh, you know, through the, the aughts, essentially. And it didn't really start taking off again until after the Great Recession of 2008, 2009. It was more like 2000, kind of 10, 11, 12 that, that we start, started to see what became this explosion in venture. Obviously, we reached another kind of nadir uh, in venture in the sort of 2020 timeframe um, uh, before things again kind of kind of uh, started to cool off. And, and I think there are a bunch of things that we learned from all of this. Um, but, um, but one of those things is that, that the, the sort of pendulum of venture kind of swings slowly, right? Because it's a little bit of what I was describing that, you know, you can decide that, that you don't want to raise another fund or in, in many funds cases that you couldn't raise another fund. And you still have years and years and years of work to do. And I remember thinking in sort of 2002, 2003, um, that there would be far fewer venture firms uh, sort of through that that coming cycle, but but um, but also that it might take some time, and I think it took a really long time. Right? I mean, it wasn't until sort of the 2008 2009 period that we really saw the firms that had kind of stopped making new investments in 2001 and 2002. They finally had sort of worked through their portfolios enough to uh, um, you know to kind of wind themselves down. And you know, I don't I don't know exactly what we're going to see. Certainly, the venture industry is much bigger than it was back in kind of the early aughts, um, it, it just in terms of kind of the staying power. I mean, there was there are a lot more, I think, legitimate venture-backed companies now than there were back in the kind of the original bubble, if you will. Um, and and I think that's because software has become quite, quite uh, sort of ubiquitous. It's become more horizontal. We sometimes describe it as kind of eating the world, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's penetrated nooks and crannies of, of all of our um, existence in different ways. You know, but that said, there's, there's, I mean, there's obviously the rise of AI. There's all this Web three. There's there's like so much still to come um, in venture, and I'm excited for you know for the next twenty years in venture, and I'm and, and I'm excited to be a little bit more towards the sidelines in that next twenty years, and not in the middle. And, and I think those things for me kind of go go hand in hand. 
you have spoken about failures in meritocracy before. Do you think that the startup and VC world is true meritocracy? Why and why no. not? No, I think it's not. And I and I think anyone who thinks it is is um, not looking at the data. Uh, the data are very clear that um, both the people that tend to become venture capitalists skew male and white, and they skew wealthy. And there's a bunch of reasons for that. Um, and uh, perhaps more perniciously, well, I guess as perniciously, um, that the uh, the money that flows to founders also skews uh, towards um, uh, white male founders. So I, I don't think you can look at those data and say it's a meritocracy at all. And I think one of the things that I hope maybe we helped a little bit on, I don't, I don't know that I can look back on sort of what we've done and say that we really moved the needle on it, frankly. Um, but, but, but that I hope for the next 20 years of venture, and I see this in our partner fund portfolio is that it, it, we do finally start to make progress on becoming more of a meritocracy where more people with great ideas have access uh, to venture. And, and I think one of the challenges of, of venture capital is that I think many people uh, who are venture capitalists do believe that it's a meritocracy, right? For some reason, there's this belief in Silicon Valley in this sort of like, you know, libertarianism, which I always find somewhat ironic because Silicon Valley was quite literally created by the federal government, right? It was a series of DARPA grants um, that that sort of, you know, helped both the internet get started, but also even before that, the microchip uh, industry get going. And, and so, you know, people make their money and then they become libertarian because they want to keep it, I guess. I don't, I don't really know what's behind that, but, but I feel like that that is a little bit of people also saying, no, the world is, is a meritocracy. And, and I think that I don't believe that that's the case. I believe in meritocracy. Like I, you know, I am, I'm absolutely a capitalist at heart and, and I, I would love to see us move more towards that, but meritocracy includes equal opportunity. And I don't think that that exists. So, I mean, following up these questions, what are the hidden aspects of Silicon Valley that outsiders like us cannot see particularly for those who only learn uh, about the US ecosystem through social media blogs and podcasts what are the challenges and downsides of being a startup founder in US um, maybe dark side of the silicon valley that haven't been taught or um, uh, shared I, i think that founders sometimes don't appreciate how much of the venture business, particularly as it's practiced in bubble periods, and we saw this a lot, um, consists of buying options. And I think when founders get an investment, take an investment, they think of that as sort of a true partnership and and that they're, um, and, and they think of it as an investment. And, and from their perspective, it is. But I think a lot of VC firms see it as placing option bets. And when the bet looks like it's paying off, they pay a bunch of attention to it. And when it's not paying off, they kind of go away. And I think that that's, you know, we saw that in the sort of grow at all cost mentality that pervaded sort of the, I don't know, that's 2018 to 2021 period in particular, but but often sort of takes over Silicon Valley. Um, and, and, and that was very VC favorable, but not necessarily company favorable, right? And I think that that... Um, I think that that oftentimes VCs do companies a miss a disservice by focusing on that. Um, and I'm not. This is not every firm. It's not every investment. But I think by and large, that actually is this sort of hidden part of Silicon Valley. And the other thing I think that 
maybe founders don't always recognize. Certainly, I didn't. I didn't even recognize this when I was in the venture industry initially as an associate. Eventually, I became a partner, and I started understanding more and more about how venture firms actually operate. Um, but just how much of venture activity uh, is and continues to be driven by fund side decision making um, when a fund is raising what they want to do with their marks to market and things like that. And I think that that is often, uh, that often puts companies in conflict with their, uh, with their investors. Um, and I think investors often believe that sort of what's good for them is good for companies. And that's, that's sometimes not the case. I just had a conversation with one of our partner funds. I'm not going to out them or the company, but um, he was describing um, a company vote that was coming up was asking my opinion for how to handle it. And some of the late stage investors kind of gave me the whole lay of the land. And some of the late stage investors were clearly, like very clearly acting in their own interest as board members, right? I mean, it's, as an investor, you can do whatever you want. You can act in your best interest and, and you should expect your investors to ultimately act in, in their own best interest. Um, but as board members, I didn't. And I gave gave this, this uh, partner fund GP some some questions to ask in the board meeting to try to sort of you know, make sure that people understood that he was watching. He's a board member in this case too, uh, but he was paying attention to the fact that um, they were potentially making decisions that were really not in the best interest of, of shareholders and not as fiduciaries of the company. So that's just one one example of it. But I that to me, the, like those are kind of some of the you asked that you know sort of what are the hidden secrets of of venture. But I, I really I come back to this. You know, venture capitalists are oftentimes buying options, and I think people don't on the on the company side don't realize that uh, i think you studied psychology and economy in the university uh, how has the educational background influenced how you evaluate founders and teams when making investment decisions i think people look at my background in econ and psych and they assume you know i'm a vc so therefore the econ really drives things and and you know i learned a lot in in economics i was a theoretical economics major i actually hadn't taken a single business course i'll tell you a funny story about learning how to do uh, company analysis when i was a, a young analyst at morgan stanley in a second but um but um so it was very sort of ethereal lots of like econometric style models like not the kind of stuff that we do as venture capitalists at all um and in fact it wasn't even until my senior year that i finally got around to taking the accounting class that was required to actually be a, a major. And so actually, I think that my psychology major, like understanding people and what drives them, um, is, is a much more important foundation for me in my day-to-day -day work as a VC. And, you know, I think one of the things that people sometimes forget about being a VC is that I, I don't really make a lot of decisions, right? I make, I make investment decisions, right? And I make uh, decisions around, I guess, hiring and firing of CEOs, Almost everything else I do is just influence, right? I, I don't, VCs don't operate businesses. I'm one of sometimes many board members on a board and I have opinions about things, but I, I can't back those opinions up with any authority of any kind, right? I mean, all I can do is uh, is offer those opinions. So really I'm in the, in the influence game. Um, and so that, you know, that means I need to be a good listener and, and that means I need to be able to synthesize a lot of different uh, data points. Um, but then it also means I need to be able to communicate that to a CEO or management team or, or the rest of the board um, in a way that, uh, you know, that influences people's decisions. Um, because all I can do is say, hey, here's how I might frame something. Occasionally, I even say this is, you know, what I think we should do or this is what I would do. 
Um, but a lot of it is sort of guiding people in the direction that I'm, I'm thinking about, um, but without having any real authority to back that up. And so, um, and that's probably something else about venture, but back to your last set of questions that, that I think people don't, don't necessarily realize. And by the way, if you have an investor that's trying to operate your business, you know, that, that's not their role. That's not what they should be doing. That's true. Uh, very quick questions uh, regarding to your decision-making decision process. Can you walk me through the decision-making process or framework, framework when considering any decision like hiring or making new investments, for example? Yeah. So a couple things to start out with. One is that um, I often in a boardroom will ask to clarify, are, is this a decision topic or a discussion topic? Um, because for starters, I want to understand, are we actually making a decision as a board? Sometimes that, that's because we are required as a board, right, as, as fiduciaries to sign off on something. Sometimes that's because the CEO will say, hey, I'm not comfortable making this decision on my own. I would like this to be a group decision. But it's important to clarify that, right? Because sometimes you get into a discussion and um, and or into a discussion at a board level and you think or, or certain board members think that they're they're there to make the decision, but actually the CEO is just looking for input. Um, and I think that that's really um, I think that's really important. So I start with that. The other thing I always start with is I have a very important mantra, which is don't panic, gather information, make an informed decision. And the order matters. And I see all over the place people mixing up the order, right? Or panicking, right? To start out with. And I think it's really important. There, there are certainly there are emergent situations that come up occasionally in venture, not as many as I think people think. Um, but I, I, I always follow that mantra, first principles, like let's not panic, can't make decisions based on emotion. There's almost always a need to get a little bit of information. And, you know, that can vary, right? Hey, if we need to make this decision today, then, okay, well, we, we can get the information we can get. But you're, I'm rarely on a call where we need to make a decision this second and we don't have a moment to step back and get data. And then, then you use the data made to make an informed decision. So for me, that's, that framework is really, really important. And as part of that, I often try to clarify, hey, when do we need to make this decision by, right? Because I think sometimes people... Um, are apt to to put artificial deadlines in front of them. And it's not that I want to take time that is an inordinate amount of time, but I want to have time typically to gather information. Um, I also feel it's, so that's, those are the most important things. That's how you approach a decision. Um, I also think it's really important to, to listen a lot. I rarely, when someone asks me my opinion, I, I will rarely, um, just sort of spout it, back, spout it back to them, right? I almost always will ask for a second. Sometimes it's just, and I'll say that sometimes if my CEOs I work with get used to this, it's kind of a funny tick of mine, but, but you know, where someone will ask me something and I'll say, give me a second. I just need like, I just need a minute of silence just to think about this for a second. I want to, I'm going to give you an answer, but I just need, I need a second to just test it in my head. Um, I like that. And I like running through that. I also like to be really clear about, what I sort of what the framework looks like. And I almost always lead with that again, because I feel like my role is rarely to be the person making the decision. And so oftentimes I'll walk up to that decision with a CEO, but I, what I'm really doing is saying, this is how I would look at the framework of that. Let's talk about 
some of the pieces that might influence that and make sure that we're on the same page about it. And then they end up coming to the conclusion that's, that's the right conclusion without me having to say it. Um, because I, I, again, I want them to feel like they have the, their eight, that agency because they really, they run these businesses. Um, so oftentimes we'll start with that framework. I will almost always sort of list out my assumptions. Um, here's how I'm thinking about this framework. Um, here's sort of what's influencing my view. You've asked me for my opinion. Now I'm going to give it to you, but here's what's influencing in that. And then, and then I'll give them the opinion. And then I'll also typically tell them how strongly I feel about that. Right. Um, and I think that's also really important. I have a style of speaking. My partners joke with me about this, that I sound very definitive about things that I often am not particularly uh, definitive about. And I think that's just, you know, I don't know, I'm, I'm loud, I talk fast or whatever it is. And so I, I typically have learned this, to, you know, to clarify with people, um, hey, you know, you've asked me my opinion, we've gone through the framework, I've given you sort of my assumptions, here's my actual opinion. And just to be clear, you know, I'm a, I'm, I'm a 62%, right? That's probably more accurate than, than it uh, typically is. But, you know, I, I, I feel, you know, I'm, I'm 90%. Like, I feel this, I feel this pretty strongly, or, hey, I'm like, kind of 50-50, right? Like, I, 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 this is probably what I do, but I, I don't feel super strongly about it. And, and, you know, you may have more data than I have, uh, which is why I've just told you what the framework and the, and the sort of the assumptions were. I, all of those things I think are important. Again, Barack, is, this is, I'm not in a decision business. I'm in, a, I'm in the influence business. And so I think it's really important to be clear about sort of what's behind um, your opinions on things. I also think that makes your opinions more likely to be adopted as well when it, when it matters. Um, but I, the other thing that I think that if I were just to, you know, give myself kudos, if, if that's okay. Um, I think others would say this is I, I think, I think I'm really good at letting go of something. Um, even, you know, even when I believed in it pretty strongly, like I, I, I'm, you know, when I'm either, when I'm just convinced that I was wrong or I'm, it's clear that that's just not the decision we're going to make, then, you know, you really need to learn to let that go. And I think that's something that boards often do wrong. Someone will have a very strong opinion about something and and they just can't let it go, right? And it comes up meeting after meeting after meeting. And it's like, look, we made this decision and now it's done and it's behind us. And I think that that's a really important, it's taken me some time to learn that skill. Um, I'm a pretty stubborn person. And so, um, uh, you know, it's it's not always in my nature to be like, okay, I felt strongly about this, but we're going in a different direction and I agree. Or, hey, I felt strongly about this, but now I have some new data and I'm I'm giving it up. But I think it's really important to have that flexibility. Sometimes people describe that as strong opinions loosely held. Um, it's taken my partners, I think, a little bit of time to get used to that as well, because I, I will often stress test something by taking the other side, which I totally don't agree with, but it just, it helps me process through something. And it's it's taken them a minute to realize sometimes, and I, sometimes now I'll raise my hand and say, hey, I'm just, I'm just, I'm, I'm just steel manning this for a second. So, um, you know, how about if we take the other side and this is what that looks like to me, and now they're sort of used to it. And now we kind of debate it. And I almost debate myself sometimes. And then I come back and I'm like, yeah, I know that was a stupid, stupid framework to think about it. I, I, that What we're talking about, you know, I, I, I agree. So how do the startup boards meetings typically work in your experience? And what have you been, uh, I mean, what have been some of the biggest lessons that you have learned from serving on the boards of the startups? 
Well, maybe we can put in the show notes. I wrote a, a, a series of blog posts on how to run a, an effective board meeting, um, which really was sort of based on on years and years and years of you know, some effective, some not so effective board meetings, right? And I think, you know, effective board meetings, well, actually, let me start with the, the uh, ineffective board meetings. Ineffective board meetings look like management team meetings, right? Um, they look like, and, and there's some signs of it uh, where every manager gets to talk at every board meeting. Um, the board packages are 50 pages, 80 pages, right? I mean, you get these huge board packages um, where the data, there's so much data in the board package that it's hard to even parse what's going on, right? Good board meetings allow companies and boards to focus on what's important. If you're just vomiting data at the board, you're not really telling them what you think is important, right? Um, and, and I think a lot of board meetings focus too much on the what and not enough on the why. What I want to hear about, especially when I'm in a meeting, the worst thing in the world is to travel somewhere, especially if it's for only one board meeting, and sit through the management team meeting where everyone reports on what they did and they read their slides because that's kind of what reporting is. And what we really want to do at a board meeting is distill what's most important at the company down to 20 slides, 25 slides. Like if it's more than that, you're really not focusing. Um, and then really focus on the why, not the what. The what should go out ahead of time. People can ask questions about that at the beginning of the meeting if that's important. But really, you want to spend time on why. And that often means not everyone in the management team is at every meeting because you're not going to cover every functional area in every meeting. You're going to pick a couple um, that you really focus on in that meeting. And then, and then I like board meetings to have sort of one, it could even be tactical. I was about to say a strategic thing, but it could be tactical. But one thing that you deep dive as a board, at least, where you say, look, let's have a discussion, a discussion topic around this, because um, I want to get the board's input on something that I think is really important. That could be product roadmap. That could be, uh, the decision to enter a market or not, that could be, you know, some some other thing that's going on with the business. Um, and I think those are effective board meetings, right? And and I think that um, the board meetings, again, I think the signs, I, I hate, sorry to focus on the negative, but I think it's easier to kind of point them out. But the, the signs that board meetings aren't, aren't effective are, I mean, I've been through some companies where, you know, there's 30 people in the room because they want every person, you know, and the person that reports to them to be involved in it. Um, I was I was on one board once. We would have seven-hour board meetings, which are ridiculous. We would have no breaks. Literally, they would just like, we're going to plow through this. If you need to go, you know, use the restroom or, you know, go get a snack, there's a table out there with snacks. You know, you just step up and go, but we're going to keep going. And those had, you know, 120-page board packets. I mean, it was absolutely ridiculous. The most effective board meetings I'm in are, as I said, board packages that are tighter. They go out well in advance so we can all read them. The board, by the way, the presentation at the board doesn't have to be what's sent ahead of time, right? I have several companies that send out a series of metrics that are not the vomit of metrics, but the stuff that we think is most important. Um, and they maybe set, send a one-page write-up from sort of each of the key, uh, you know, key uh, managers at the business. Always they include a CEO note that says, this is what I'm thinking about. This is what I'm worried about. This is where I want to focus in the board meeting. Um, and maybe this is an area where I could use some help. And then we get into the board meeting and, and oftentimes there's a presentation that accompanies what went through, what, what went out um, that we haven't seen yet. That's fine. But we all know what's going on in the business because we've had the write-up. We've seen the metrics. The metrics 
the, the slides are essentially the same at every board meeting. Sometimes we take something away or add something if we need to. Um, and then that really focuses the board meeting on the discussion of why is that, why are we seeing what we're seeing and, and what do we need to think about um, in order to continue to build a business? So I, I would encourage people to read. I mean, I say it in much more detail in this series of blog posts. I think it's five or six blog posts, um, but I, I think will, they are really important. I will add the, I will add the links about uh, that blog posts as well uh, okay. to the comments. Uh, what are the three questions that you, you find yourself asking most frequently in the investment meetings and maybe uh, with the new startups and the board meetings with the portfolio companies? Well, in, in the, sorry about that. Uh, in the investment meetings, um, I really like to start with how people came to the idea. I just, I think understanding people's sort of motivations is most important. Um, and there's lots of different ways that people come to, you know, to found businesses. Um, but that's my favorite investment um, question to ask. Um, in board meetings, I, I, I often will try to hone in on um, both why is this an important topic to talk about? Like, why did you decide that this is the thing that we need to talk about? Um, and and the really understand what the CEO or the management team thinks the decision framework looks like. I want to understand how they're looking, not necessarily what is their opinion, but how are they looking at the question? What's the balance that they're trying to strike here? Um, and I find though, I don't know that those are trick questions. I, I mean, I think in the board context, those are pretty obvious questions. Um, but what I've found is that people are too quick to, to kind of jump in with their own opinions. I, I had a, when I was, I wasn't even a partner yet. I was still, it was still at Mobius. I, I had a meeting once as a CEO came out to see me and, um, she outlined, we were sitting in a conference room. She whiteboarded a bunch of stuff and. And she outlined some stuff she was super frustrated in. And I immediately jumped into, okay, we should do this. We should do this. We should do this, right? This is like 2003. Uh, so 20 years ago now. And she said, Seth, stop. I'm still in the venting phase. I just need to vent for a second. And that's really, I mean, it was 20 years ago. It really stuck with me that you, it's so important to like, stop, make sure you've heard everything and make sure that you are answering the question that you want to have, that the CEO wants to have answered. Um, and I, that's another thing that I will, maybe that is a trick question where I'll, I'll ask the CEO, the management team, let's be really clear about what, what question are you asking for advice on? Um, because what I found in board meetings is that people are so quick to jump in and it's funny too. I've had this question a few times. We're often the lead investor in, in a business. Um, maybe because that's because of check size. Maybe that's just, I'm, 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 these days I'm like often the oldest VC in the room, um, but whatever it is. But I, I'm rarely the first person to speak to a question. And the reason is because someone always jumps in, right? Like someone's always like first in. I don't want to fight them for that. I'm a pretty deliberate person when it comes to answering questions. And so I just need time to think anyway. And, and so unless someone directs the question to me, in which case I will often say, give me just a second as I process, um, I'm almost never the first guy to, to speak. A and I've just sort of come to be super comfortable with that. Like, I think that that's totally fine um, to let someone speak, let someone else speak. The other thing that I think is important, and this is more for the VCs that are listening to this, 
I don't find the need to opine on everything that comes up in a board meeting, right? Like, like it is not, it's like being on a panel at a conference. I hate those panels where someone, the moderator asks a question and then each of the four or five panelists gives an answer. And then the moderator answers another question, each of the four or five people, like, like you don't have to jump in on everything. Right. I mean, I, I think oftentimes it's, it's fine to say, Hey, I don't have anything to add to this discussion. I think that was, that was a really interesting point or, Hey, I largely agree with what, you know, Sheila said, and um, I don't really have anything to add to that. Um, I think that that's, that's a, that's a really important skill that I, I find that, you know, some VCs that are maybe earlier in their career, they think their job is to come in and like, you know, offer suggestions on everything, right? And 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 I don't think that that's our job, right? I think our job is to mostly listen, to offer frameworks, uh, you know, to to offer suggestions when appropriate, um, and sometimes defer when I either I'm like, hey, I just don't feel like I have the data, I don't feel like I have an opinion on this, or it's not an area that I'm expert in. Um, there's this cliche in, in venture that this reminds me of, by the way which I absolutely hate, right? Which is that like VCs love to tell their, uh, their investors, their LPs, I'm the first phone call. Uh, and, um, and I hate that, right? I, I, I always tell people, if you're the first phone call on every, uh, every, every subject area on a board, you have a terrible board, right? Like you, like you, you're really the expert in, you know, finance and HR and product and go to market and like, like really you don't have anyone on the board who is, who knows more than you do about any of those topics. Like that doesn't make any sense. Um, you should be the go-to phone call for certain things, but you should have created a board that has this diversity of experience so that, that there's an obvious person or people to call on various subjects that aren't you, the VC. And I, I, I always find that cliche annoying, but that's also why I feel like if, if the venture investors are the first people that are talking on every subject, especially if it's the same person, you're kind of back into the like, why don't we let some other people who are experts in other areas, you know, talk about this stuff. So do you so have do you... any red flags or warning signs, especially in the first meetings from the founders or from the environment? I think that one of my general warning signs for people, period, and we try to be very deliberate about this at Foundry is when people use the sort of first person pronouns too much, right? I, it's okay to say, I have an opinion, right? That's your own opinion. But so much of what we do as a VC, we are foundry, right? We, you know, we are comprised of different partners, but you know, when we are doing something, that's, that's a we, that's a we thing. Um, you know, when we talk about, when I talk about values that foundry have, well, we have those values, not just I. So I think that's important, and that's a, that tends to be a red flag at companies as well. When when people talk about what they did, um, I did, I did, I did, and I think that that's uh, it's important to to me. That's a flag to kind of dig further into it because um, you know people accomplish a lot more when they are inclusive about it, when they're pulling more people in from, across a broader set of, of uh, teammates, etc. And so that's that's kind of my probably my one red flag that I think about the most. I mean, I have a couple of last questions, by the way. Um, I mean, you reflect a great successful career. Do you believe it was primarily due to luck or result of your hard work and dedication? I, I Luck is number one. I put this in my blog post. I was lucky in so many ways. I joined Venture at a fortuitous time. I mean, more than anything, I 
works for Brad Feld, right? Like I, I think Brad is one of the best investors of our generation. And I was trained to be a venture capitalist by following him around for five years, which is the best way I could have ever imagined to learn venture. And and I have him as a sounding board. I continue, you know, I've had him as a sounding board for 23 years. Um, and that's, you know, that was more than anything in my life. That was incredibly lucky. Um, I was lucky to have my other partners who, you know, we, we've had this incredible balance at Foundry. I was lucky to obviously invest in some incredible uh, incredible founders and have some incredible CEOs. So absolutely. And now that I, I, you know, that doesn't mean I didn't have to work hard for that, but you know, the cliche of like, you know, luck comes to those who work hard. I believe that that's true, you know, but luck I think plays a bigger role in life and in business than maybe people, you know, give it, give it credit for. So I, that for me is number one on the list. And, you know, but I, you know, I also think that, that working hard has been helpful. And, and I think, I hope having some amount of humility and, and um, and really caring a lot about the practice of venture and how to be a good venture capitalist like that matters a lot to me. Are there any particular books or podcasts or other media you like to listen while cycling for long distances? I devour books, <laughs> so I I'm a I'm a huge um, fan of uh, of Audible. We have this funny Audible account. I don't know why it ended up this way, but my wife, my my teenage son, and I all share one Audible account. So we, you know, we've got. He's really into like you know, Lord of the Rings and, and sort of that style fiction, and and my wife and I listen to more similar things. But she has her own things that she listens to. So our our library is really diverse. It's kind of funny sometimes. I gotta like hunt through it. But I mean, I listen to, I don't know, twenty thirty books a year. Like I really get through it a lot um, because I think I think it's. It's helpful. So I've really loved, I've already picked a couple titles. I mean, obviously I wrote a book, so I, you know, I would be <laughs> remiss if I didn't mention the new builders. I actually think it talks about some of the themes we talked talked about on this podcast in terms of meritocracy, um, sort of the evolution of venture and the, the diversification of entrepreneurship, uh, entrepreneurship much more broadly than just venture backed entrepreneurship. So I would certainly recommend that. I really liked Subtract by Lodi Katz. Um, that was one that, that really spoke to me. I really liked both of the Annie Potts books. Um, I think those were really, really interesting that talk about decision making and and how we make decisions. So those are some that kind of come to mind as as books that I've read recently ish um, that, you know, really uh, stick with me. Um, so those are those are things that I, um, I I think I get a lot out of reading. I do listen to quite a few podcasts. Um, but you know, they tend to be kind of all over the place, right? And some of them are psychology podcasts, hidden brain, things like that. I listen to a couple venture podcasts, Tim Ferriss, uh, all in things like that. Um, and then I listen to a handful of current event pod podcasts as well. Uh, things like, uh, pod save the world or America and, uh, opening arguments, um, strict scrutiny because I'm kind of interested in, in legal stuff, things like that. So all great things to kind of keep me distracted. I, I, I have a general rule on podcasts. I don't, I don't, I don't have to listen to every episode because it just gets a little bit overwhelming. I just listed off like six or seven podcasts that, you know, probably put 10 or 15 podcasts a week out. So, um, you know, that would be a lot to listen to, but, but I try to create time as you referenced often when I'm working out, riding my bike, going for a run, something like that, or driving. Um, because that that's important to me and, and obviously you know books are important as well so by the way how did you first get into the cycling and how many hours do you write in a typical week you know i um my wife when i met my wife um she had a lot of friends who were cyclists and and she really encouraged me to uh to ride i, I you know i i owned a bike but i wasn't like really 
I wasn't as serious about it. Um, I also found, so that was kind of what got me, you know, sort of initially interested. I also found it was a great way to, uh, you know, meet people, have me, you know, have meetings, expand my network, uh, certainly in, in Boulder, Longmont, where I live, you know, there, there are a lot of group rides and it was a good way to meet some folks. Um, I liked that I can listen to, you know, to podcasts and things like that. I probably 50, 50 riding by myself versus riding, riding with friends. So it's the winter time here. So I'm not riding, a, you know, riding a ton, but, um, uh, but I like to, I like to ride or run, you know, call it, I don't know, 20 hours a week, something like that. I mean, that feels like a good, good amount of time. I, I've gotten more into running. It's, it's sort of such an efficient way. I hated running. And then I, I agreed with my partner, Ryan, for his 50th birthday, I would, would run, he was going to run a marathon. And instead of just doing the obvious thing, which is like, Hey, why don't I, you know, I'll be at the finish line with beer for you. Uh, I was like, Oh, I'll run it too. And I'm, I'm a terrible runner. So I, I, but I, you know, I got into it because I, I was, I use one of these programs. They tell you what to run every day. And, um, but you know, after three, four months of running, you know, whatever it was, uh, I don't know, 40 miles a week or something like that, which for me was a lot. Um, I, uh, I turned to, I ended up, I really liked it. So I've kind of balanced out my cycling with some running as well. Cause it's, you know, if you go for a bike ride, it's gotta be like an hour and a half or it's not even really worth it. I mean, maybe an hour if you're going uphill or something like that, but, you know, but for a run, you could run for, you could do a 5k and, you know, go run for, uh, you know, for 25 minutes or whatever it is and, and feel like you got a good workout in. So I, um, I kind of like that. So anyway, but I do like sports where I can listen to, uh, to books and podcasts. That's, that's the most important thing. So if you go back to the 20 years ago, what advice would you give your younger self today? Hmm. It all sounds cliche. Like the first things that come to my mind are like, you know, it's like prepare yourself for this long journey. Right. Um, but also I think I wish I had been more deliberate. A couple of things actually that I think are real piece of advice. I wish I'd been more deliberate about how to scale my own time. I failed at it miserably. There was a, a moment in probably 20, I don't know, 11, 2012, when I just truly hit the wall and was like, I just can't keep working at this speed. Um, and I wish I had invested in myself and in some of the tools um, that, uh, and the coaching that, that helped me expand my ability, my capacity. Um, but also as part of that, I started approaching my work differently and I realized I didn't need to do all the things that I thought I needed to do. And I think when I was earlier in my venture career, I thought I needed to be at every event, to go to everything, to, you know, be um, working on every problem that every company had. And I feel like when I hit the wall, I became increasingly better at, at not feeling like I needed to do all of those things. Um, and, and in many cases, these days, I'll look around a boardroom and we come up with something and, um, and say, okay, who, who's going to do this? I don't, I don't think I'm the best person to, you know, help with this specific thing. And, and I think that, um, that's really helped me, um, sort of create time to, to focus on the things that really matter in my work, but also outside of my work. And, and I think that that's, I wish I had understood that, you know, when I was earlier in my career, when my kids were younger, I mean, all of that stuff, right. I mean, you know, you run around like crazy and, And I think it, it was, uh, it was not sustainable clearly for me. And, and I wish I could have done that quite a bit differently. And I think it would have started with focusing on a smaller set of things where I could really be impactful and really being thoughtful about how do I manage my time and how do I manage my workflow to gain leverage? 
Seth, thank you very much. It was always a pleasure to talk with you and it was insightful and lots of uh, great uh, information that you have provided today. Thank you very much. Barack, I really enjoyed it. Next time in Istanbul, I'd love to see you out there.